Our scripture reading tonight comes from Exodus chapter 9, verse 8. We'll be reading through to the end of chapter 10. You'll find that in your pew Bibles on page 51. All right, this is the word of God. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils became upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, for he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show me my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls upon him. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. On the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. This thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and barley, uh, yeah, flax and barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out to the city from the Pharaoh, and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, what signs I have done among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, so they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, 
and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to them, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, so they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. He said to them, Go, serve the Lord with your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you go and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had never before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locust and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, so your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must also go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of God. Well, I... I trust you appreciated Sean's careful reading of our text tonight. Earlier, we uh, this morning I said, look, read it worthy to give it that kind of edge of your seat narrative where the Lord is redeeming his people, as we read in Exodus 6, 6, with this outstretched arm and with these great acts of judgment. Read it like the narrative that it is. And, uh, as you know, that was in fulfillment. In Exodus 6, 6, when the the Lord spoke of doing this, that was in fulfillment of his promise to the people of Israel. 
Uh, Sean and I knew that'd take about eight minutes to read that, and I knew it'd end up with about 30 minutes to preach this sermon, but that's okay. That's, that's the, one of the points tonight was that we want God's Word read as we're together. That when Paul was exhorting Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, verse 13, he said this, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And you might know, of course, that Timothy's world was a pre-printing press world where copies of the Scriptures were a luxury. So reading aloud those precious portions of Scripture were really a luxury, a necessity. And then in Paul's mind, as he says to Timothy, really a biblical priority, an apostolic priority. Well, I want you to think with me for a moment about how frustrating it is to not know the purpose, the why for a project you're committed to, maybe in a meeting to which you're invited, or for an initiative in which you're involved. You think about this, you have those moments, you're on a phone call, you're in a meeting, you're doing a project, and all of a sudden there's this epiphany, this moment where you think, what is our goal? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? Where are we headed? And some of you know, if you've been involved in a meeting with a poor agenda or not a good facilitator, all of a sudden you've burned up all this time in your thinking. We're nowhere. Like, we've gone. Okay, you know what that's like. And if you don't answer your question, what is our goal? Where are we headed? What are we doing? What are the benchmarks to know how we'll be successful? We're going to be frustrating. We'll be frustrated. Not what is the preacher saying, but what is his point? And maybe that's getting a little closer to home for some of you. Okay. And all these questions relate to clarity of purpose and mission. Nothing is really more frustrating in a mission than lack of clarity about the mission. And few things really put wind in the sails of a mission like crystal clear purpose. The Lord, brothers and sisters, the Lord is not unclear about his actions towards Pharaoh in Egyptian in Egypt on behalf of his people. We love today to use the word intentional, to say this person is very intentional in the way they live. But nobody's here more intentional to the Lord. That's why we named this sermon Purposeful Plagues. His plagues, his strokes were purposeful. And I want to reread from where Sean read those few verses, chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. I'd like you for a moment, just put your eyes on there, if you will. The Lord Yahweh said to Moses, in a phrase we've seen before, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord... Okay, they know this, Yahweh. But here's a new phrase. The God of the Hebrews. Let my people go that they may serve me. Now that's an oft-repeated phrase. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. That is literally on your heart in the Hebrew. In the text. That's what it means. I'm going to send these. I will send these on your heart. And on your servants, 
and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. No more access. It's like cutting off a kid financially that needs to earn their own bread. But look in verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my purpose or my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. I have caused you to stand literally. That's, that's the sense in the Hebrew. Not that you're standing. No, I've caused you. I've propped you up through these first five strokes, these first five plagues, that I might demonstrate my power. That I might display it so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay? And these verses are the lead up, the prologue to plague seven, six, seven, eight, and nine. To the seventh plague particularly right here. A seventh stroke of mind-blowing hail. Okay? Now kids... When we get to these plagues, I'm going to ask you for some feedback. So this is going to be a bit interactive as a sermon, so be ready. All right? I want you to speak out loud. We'll repeat it so the live stream can catch it. But there are no accidents with God. We live in a world where it's acceptable if you say, how was your day? Bad. I had an accident. But there are none with God. God's never caught by surprise. That sovereign Lord of the universe... The eternally existent, uncreated triune God who made heaven and earth and all the creatures that dwell on the land, in the seas, in the skies. It's his world. We are living in it, in effect, paying rent. We're living in it at his pleasure. And for Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, the message is perfectly transmitted with super sharp edges, like when you can see with 20-20 vision. There's no sense of effort. It's clear. This is what the Lord is saying through his servants to Pharaoh. Okay, get this. I've placed you into power. There's that idea right there. I've raised you up. It's what we call the Hiffelstem in Hebrew. I've caused this to happen. I've placed you into power initially, and I've preserved you in power to demonstrate not your power, but mine. Get it? Not yours, but mine. And why have I done that? Because I'm jealous that my great name might be proclaimed in all the world. Kids, what is the third commandment? What's the third commandment? Do not take. All right. 
do not take the Lord's name in vain. And what does that tell us about God's name? It's great. It's to be honored. It's not to be profaned. My great name is to be proclaimed in all the earth. My name is great. And this is my world. Joel Bell says this of the entire drama of the ten plagues. The whole purpose of the plagues in Egypt was to drive at least two nations to God, each in its own way. And the phrase, shall, you shall know that I am the Lord or the Lord your God, is all over this narrative. Look for a moment. Chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now, real quick for clarification, there's no distinction in that verb to know whether the object is Egypt or the people of Israel. To know is to know in this sense. One is obviously in a covenantal way when he's speaking to Israel that I am the Lord your God versus God's demonstration that they know that he's not to be trifled with, right? I, I may not know a lion personally, but I know that a big male lion is not to be played with. I, I have no personal knowledge if there's a big 500-pound lion right over there. But I know that not in a, in a covenantal way, but in a protective way that, that uh, he's going to win and I'm going to lose. He's going to eat and I'm going to be eaten. Okay. And then chapter 9 and verse 14, we just read this. I'll send all these plagues, all my plagues on you yourself, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then chapter 9, verse 29. The Lord says, the thunder will cease, second part of the verse, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know, and here's a slight change, that the earth is the Lord's. And then finally, chapter 10, verse 2. So we come to the, the plague of the locusts. He says, Go in to Pharaoh, I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. That's the message there for Pharaoh. Well, what does the Lord do in these four plagues so that we don't simply blur them together? Who knows the first five plagues? Remember? Pretty simple. The Nile is turned to blood. 
The frogs come up out of the Nile. Gnats, flies, and all what? The livestock of Egypt dies. That's right. I wanted these four that we're going to look at, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth. they immediately precede the Passover. And I want to look at them briefly and then draw out five applications for us over these next 25 minutes. Now, kids, I want to give you an acronym. An acronym is simply what? It's letters that stand for something bigger than itself. Okay? So like GBC, what does that stand for? Grace Baptist Church. We use that kind of as an abbreviation. You could call it an acronym if you want to do that. So I'm going to give you this. B-H-L-D. Big Hairy Lions Destroy. Okay? You can think of these. Boils, Hail, Locust, Darkness. Those are the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth plagues. And we just have one more next week. The Passover. And I want you to think about this. Did the Lord really need all Ten plagues to accomplish what he was doing. Did he really need ten plagues to cause Pharaoh to let his people go? No. He could have made Pharaoh say uncle quicker than you can say B-H-L-D. Why did he take his time? Have you thought about that? Because he's acting with intention. Why did he prolong this process? Why did he keep hardening Pharaoh's heart and allowing Pharaoh to harden his own heart? Because God was acting, Yahweh was working with a definite purpose. And that purpose was to display his awesome and mighty power in the midst of the plagues. Well, real quickly, let's think about the plagues. Plague one, or the first plague. What was the Nile River? It was the pride of Egypt. And he turned it to blood. What was the second plague? Millions of hopping frogs on every square inch of Egyptian soil. And some of you that are a little like germophobic or OCD... I want you to imagine that you're sleeping and the frogs are under your sheets. You squish them when you step on them getting out of bed. And then you go to wash, use the toilet, and they're in the toilet, and you're washing your hands. Everything is froggy. This is the world. Millions of hopping frogs on every square inch of Egyptian soil, even in your kneading bowl where you're making your bread. There's a third plague, millions of buzzing gnats on man and beast, every cubic foot of Egyptian airspace, though Pharaoh's magicians couldn't replicate that miracle sign. And then plague four, and some of you got this because you know you can just be driven crazy by a single fly in your house. And this was true when we spent that month in Nairobi and you're under a mosquito net and you get one mosquito in there and I'm telling you, Kenyan mosquitoes are faster than American mosquitoes. I could not kill them no matter how hard I tried. But one mosquito was driving me nuts. But these were millions of buzzing gnats on man and beast. These were millions multiplied by millions of swarming flies in the land of Egypt. He says the land was ruined by them. Even though the Lord had successfully enforced 
in Goshen a no-fly zone, okay? And his people lived, this is amazing, just that part of Egypt was fly-free, even though all of Egypt was plagued with the flies. And then there was the fifth fly, the fifth, the fifth plague. All the Egyptian livestock die, though none of Israel's died. Now, let me anticipate real quickly. Some of you are thinking, how is it that all of the livestock die if some of them are exposed then to the boils in the sixth plague or the hail in the seventh plague? How is that possible? Sometimes, theologically, all does not always mean what? All. It's, a, it's an expression to say, even as we read that it says of the Lord Jesus, that all of Jerusalem was coming out to see him. Did that mean every single man and woman, boy and girl was going? Not necessarily, right? It's a, it's a way of saying, of saying a huge amount. So that when you look then at the, at the boils, the sixth plague, and that there are sores on man and beast, and that hail, the risk is that whoever, uh, any livestock, any slaves left in the field would be destroyed, would die because of the hail. Don't find a conflict there. Don't find that. Now, I want us to notice, if you haven't seen this, that the plagues are set up in sets of three, first through third, fourth through sixth, and seventh through ninth. And so there's something similar about these plagues. Um, but I want initially to tell you that in the second and fourth plagues, you want to see how Pharaoh toys with repentance. How does he play with the idea of repenting? Pretending as though he's ready to let God's people go. He gives the impression he's ready to obey and let the people of Israel go. But his repentance, his change of heart is a mirage. It's a mirage. It's not real. It's like when you think there's water in the desert, you see this thin line of green. or It's an oasis of water, but it's not. It's like your mind is playing tricks on you. He only toyed with repentance when he and his nation were under the pain of a plague. And every time that the Lord relieved that pain, the pain of the plague, he would resort to his hard-heartedness. Only when he was feeling the consequences of his behavior and as would he, would he feign, would he fake, Repentance. He still would not let the people go. Now, there's something else I want you to look. Kids, you might notice this. In these first three plagues, you'll see the phrase, say to Aaron. And you'll also see that the staff is prominent in those first three plagues. You can look at that. Chapter 7, verse 15. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. This Verse 17, you'll see, with the staff that is in my hand. Verse 19, take your staff and stretch out your hand. Verse 20, you'll see it. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. Chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, 
chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. This is the staff that the Lord was referring to in chapter 4, verse 2, when he said, when the Lord asked Moses, what is that in your hand? When Moses was feeling his inadequacies, he's wondering, how am I going to do this? No one's going to listen to me. No one's going to believe me. And they'll say, hey, the Lord didn't appear to you. And the Lord had said, look, I'm the one that's provisioning you. You use what I'm giving you. You trust me. Don't complicate this. Here's that staff. You use it. I'll miraculously use that in your hand. I'll do surprising things with it. Now, let's look briefly at these four plagues. And kids, I want to ask you, what, uh, what are the four plagues we're looking at tonight? Six, seven, eight, nine. B, all right, B-H-L-D. What's the first? Boils, the next? Hail, the next? Locusts, and the last? Darkness. That's right. Big hairy lions destroy. All right. So what can you tell us about the boils? Look there in chapter 9 in verses 8 through 12. Who do the boils end up on? The boils are on who or what? Man and beast. Man and beast. Okay. There's something you'll notice here is you're not going to see a staff. You're not going to see uh, this message delivered, a message delivered to Pharaoh. What do we see? We see the Lord sending Moses and Aaron and just giving them a commission to go and take what? What is it they get in their hands? Soot. Soot comes from what? Things that... Burn, all right? Some things that go under the fire. So that was soot from the kiln. So the question is, what was the kiln used for in Egypt? Bricks. And who made those bricks? The Israelites, the people of Israel. Were those free people? No. They were oppressed. They were enslaved People. In fact, we're going to see in the coming weeks that there were over 600,000 men, not counting women and children, that were enslaved there in Egypt. And think about this, the idea of a foil, uh, an irony here. What did the soot of the kiln represent? It represented Israel's slavery in Egypt. Because what was produced in those kilns was brook was bricks. And so in a sense, when Moses and Aaron took the soot from the kiln in their hands and threw it up like this, and that produced boils all over the men and the beasts there in Egypt, it was like they were getting a taste of their own medicine. They were in that moment enslaved by the boil. By the boils. Now let's look at this next plague. Hail. What is hail? Kids, what's hail? Okay, we have an answer. It's ice that comes from the sky. 
All right? It's ice that comes from the sky. Now, how much came from the sky? How much? What? Millions, I think, perhaps billions of little pieces of ice from the sky. A little billet of hail is interesting. A medium amount of hail is inconvenient. But this type of hail, this amount of hail, was what we say was unprecedented. You can read there in verse 18, Behold, about this time tomorrow... I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And you want to notice in the seventh hail, at this point, it's like God is stepping forward and he's adding to the language when he says, get up and do this. You tell him the Lord The God of the Hebrews, you tell him, let my people go. That's who's giving this message. And that he is personally sending all his plagues on your very heart. And you understand that. If if you say, this pains me to my heart, that means there's a depth and intensity to that pain. And God is saying... I'm going to turn up the heat on Pharaoh, and not just on Pharaoh, but on your servants and your people. And here's why I'm going to do it. Because you're going to know that I am without rival. I am without an equal. And then, of course, he goes on to say, look, I've been toying with you like a cat with a mouse. I could have handled this like that. This is for this purpose. I wanted to put my power on display in all its awesomeness so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And that word proclaimed is like this. It's like the idea of recounted. Some of you have had your parents recount sometimes, maybe if you misbehave during the day. Have any of you ever had when your dad got home at night, your mom recount to your father just what you did during the day? Has anyone ever had that experience? Yeah, I see a hand. Okay, thank you. I did too in Fort Lauderdale, Florida growing up. Don't feel alone. That's right. It's one thing for mom to say, well, da, 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 da. Then dad gets home. All right. (laughs) The heavies come home, right? This idea of recounting is an intensive verb. It's not simply the telling, but it's the recounting, the actual proclamation. It's like when a baby is born to some of the royalty in in, in England, and they get up and they do this announcement, and they have this crier, da-da-da-da, we like to announce it, born to so-and-so-and-so-and-so, this little boy, this little girl. And it's very, you know, it's, it's laid out. It's, a, it's like an official proclamation. And that's the idea here. But for this purpose, I have caused you to stand. I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In all the earth. 
But it's in this that we see not just a partial repentance in Pharaoh's response, but we see a false repentance. We see this in verse 27. He said this time, look at this. If someone said this to you, you'd think he's really repenting. Just look at verse 27. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. It sounds very spiritual. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. And of course, Moses comes and says, not a problem. I'll pray for you. As soon as I'm out of the city, I'll stretch up my, out my hands to the Lord. And this will abate. It will be no more. So that you will know that the earth is the Lord's. Isn't that interesting? Moses' focus is that Yahweh and his claim on the earth would be reminded to Pharaoh that you would know it. But look what he says. Look, Pharaoh's very, I mean, Moses is very discerning. Verse 30. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. And yet Moses does what he promises. And you can see the predictable response in verse 24. What happened? When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And kids, let me tell you, if you're wrestling with becoming a Christian, you're thinking about the very nature of what it means to be a Christian. That involves faith, embracing Jesus, but also repentance, turning a full 180 degrees, that's a half a circle, from going your way and going God's way. And that means then that all your desire to go after God and repent does not stop simply when the consequences for your sin have gone away. That there's something, there's a seed of righteousness that's been planted in you when you're truly converted. That when the consequences of your sin, maybe even the discipline of your parents, is over, you are still, as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, you are still at the core of your being, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's what it means to be born. Again, I want us to look at this last plague, darkness. What type of darkness was this? Moses says it was a darkness to be felt. Everyone that ever moves here from drier western environments, when they're here during the summer, they always speak about how what it is in summer, how humid. Yeah, especially like go to Charleston, June, July, or August. But you could feel that humidity. You could feel, Moses said, the darkness that came upon the land of Egypt was such that it could be 
And I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you literally cannot see your hand in front of your dark in front of your face. That's the level of darkness. Imagine there's no mention of the light of the stars or a full moon, but that everyone was sitting in their homes for three long days. They could not see one another. Perhaps they could speak to each other, but they, they everything was by fill, by feel. And then verse 24, look what Pharaoh says. And it looks like partial repentance. It does, just like there had been with, with the hail and with the locusts. You see whether the false repentance I'm referring to is in chapter 9, verse 27, this time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, I and my people are in the wrong. And then chapter 10 with the locusts, where you think, he says, the Lord be with you. Initially, he's, he's like, let them go, right? But he says, no, no, just the men. And then you can see the sarcasm in Pharaoh. No, go, the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And then Pharaoh there literally drives out Moses in Aaron from his presence. Well, now again, in chapter 10, in verse 24, there's this partial repentance. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only, watch this, let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So initially, initially, it was all about you can do it within the nation. You know, don't leave. Then it's like, well, just just the men, just the men. And now here, when they're saying, no, everything, everything, that's what they're saying, is going to need to go. But Pharaoh's negotiating. It's partial repentance. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses drives a hard bargain. He says, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings. That is, we need the livestock. We need these flocks and herds to go with us. Our livestock also must go with us, not a hoof. Think about that. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Now, for the moment, I want you to appreciate the scale of this. So you have to think that the people of Israel numbered somewhere at least a million people, at least 20% of the size of the state of South Carolina with 5 million people. I want you to imagine the size of their flocks and herds. And Moses says, no, they've got to go. But look what we read, verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. They've come to an impasse, and Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. In other words, he's come to this point at this impasse where the realization is that the demand, the, the obedience that God is requesting, the demands that Moses and Moses is, is holding his ground, Pharaoh says, get away from me, take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see 
your face again. And so ends the first nine plagues. It's as though there's no solution. There's an impasse. Yet again, Pharaoh has hardened his heart. The Lord has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Those are both equally true statements. So I want to see how we can apply this very briefly. And I'm going to give you five points of application. I want you, if you'll note these very briefly. Number one is to see how God, that he acts with purpose. These were purposeful plagues. God always acts with wise, holy, and just purpose. But for this purpose, he says, I have raised you up. Exodus 9, verse 16. God always has a plan. He's not arbitrary. He's not capricious. Mean-spirited to be mean-spirited. He's not like a guard at Auschwitz. He's not like he's not like a drill instructor in the Marines that just is wanting to make life very difficult for the recruits. That's them. But Paul uses the case in Pharaoh in Romans 9 to demonstrate God's prerogative, God's right to deal with his creatures as he sees fit. And that is not wrong, that is right, because he made us and not we ourselves. And I want to say, one of the things, if you're under 18, so kids, a lot of times a little more casual Sunday night, but this is, this is the time in your life when you get this. You learn to live under God-given authority and to do that. And we, you have not... And I'm not saying that the authority, the purpose of all God-given authority is always for the benefit, for the flourishing of those who are under that authority. And sometimes, of course, those in authority abuse the responsibility they've been given. All right? But I want you to see here that God has the right to deal with us as he sees fit. If you apply for a job and you don't get it, that's okay. If you've studied for a test and you really think you deserved an A and you got a B, perhaps there's a process of appeal. But understand that God has a prerogative to deal with you and me as creator. He has particular rights as creator. Not only does he act with purpose, wise, holy, and just purpose, but also I want us to note that even as in this last plague, we we read this, which is a beautiful phrase. You don't want to miss this in verse 23. It speaks of the Egyptians. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. And then there's this beautiful little B-U-T. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Do you want to live in light? Guess who says I'm the light of the world? Yeah. I'm the light of the world. A number of years ago we were with Don and 
Gail Donnell down in Argentina. He was preaching through this. Yo soy la luz del mundo. I am the light of the world. And he who abides in me does not live what? Darkness. But lives in light. His people have light even if the rest of the world is in darkness. There's a third application. And that is that his acts do not deny our role or personal responsibility. But neither do ours obscure his as the essential first cause. God's acts do not deny our role or personal responsibility. But neither do ours obscure his as the essential first cause. And some of you know the little story that I tell about when we were in Beijing with Dr. Krabendam and the lady moved my coffee and I was so frustrated with her in McDonald's. And I came back from the bathroom and I just had my coffee perfect, cream and sugar, just like I liked it. It was really cold in Beijing. And I was frustrated. And Dr. Krabendam looked at me like only a man like almost twice your age can look at you and said, Ah, Mark. Right? When the lady moves your coffee, God moves your coffee. He's the first cause. Don't get mad at the lady. God's behind that. His acts do not deny our role or personal responsibility, but neither do ours obscure his as the essential first cause. Fourth application is about repentance. His true gift of repentance is characterized by humility, by acceptance of God's terms, by an unwillingness to negotiate anything but full, joyful, steadfast, light-seeking obedience in the face of Jesus Christ. It makes us really slow to be pointing at God and saying, God, you're not fair in this. God, you, you didn't get this right. Let me call you to account. This true gift of repentance is marked by that Philippians 2 humility of not counting ourselves as important as others. It's counting others more important than ourselves. It mirrors, it's shaped by what the Son of God looked like as He went to the cross. Even His incarnation taking on human flesh without all its sinfulness. And there's a fifth application we're done, and that's this. His saving acts on our behalf and on behalf of his people are designated for a perpetual remembrance. And I want to help you if you give you a one way, one grid to look at the Old Testament. Is some, as one theologian said, the entire Old Testament could be summarized in one word, remember. And so God's saving acts on our behalf, on behalf of his people are designated for perpetual remembrance. As a deterrent to sin and faithlessness, 
but also as this encouragement to our faithful pursuit of righteousness, a Christ-centered pilgrimage where we daily contemplate all that He has done for us in Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is designed to encourage us. This is designed to propel us. This is designed to sustain us. This is to make designed to make Christ beautiful and attractive and such that we would sell all that we could have, that we might have that pearl of great price, that we might have that field wherein lies hidden treasure. Even Psalm 78, where we read the call to worship tonight. One of the great historical psalms imply this very truth in verse 42. Turn with me and we'll be done. Turn with me to to Psalm 78 just for a moment. And I think that this may surprise some of you when you see this. If you've never noticed this before, that around the plagues and God's judgment against Pharaoh and the description of those plagues, beginning in verse 42, and going all the way through verse 55, if you want to say that, God puts in there this remembrance of the plagues and what God did, His power, verse verse 42, on the day when He redeemed them from the foe, when He performed His signs in Egypt, His marvels in the fields of Zoan. That's the reminder. It's there because what the psalmist is saying That the reason the children of Israel tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel is that they were forgetful. They did not call to faithful and constant remembrance what God had done for them with outstretched arm through those ten strokes against the greatest in Egypt. And so I call you tonight. Remember. Remember all that He has done for you. And we used this verse last week and I'll recall it for you today. You always connect the book of Hebrews to Psalm 95 to Exodus 17. To Massa and Meribah. Do not harden your heart. As the children of Israel did in the day of the rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, move towards him. Ask of him. Believe in him.